0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200mg at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
1: There is no place like the Cube. Family. Welcome to Black HIV in the South, How Did We Get Here? I'm Anna Deshaun, your favorite queer radio personality and co-host of this podcast. I'm joined by my friend, Dwayne Kramer. Dwayne, say hi to the people.
2: Hey, y'all, how you doing?
1: I'm sure they're doing great because they're joining us. And family, you're going to hear a lot more from Dwayne in just a little bit. But I want to start in the beginning and share why I want to tell this story. The journey began on April 18, 2022, when I decided to put an all call out to my queer news podcast listeners. I asked if they could support my efforts to go and cover the 35th anniversary of the AIDS Memorial quilt. I had never seen the quilt in person, and this was set to be the largest display of the quilt in over a decade. The National AIDS Memorial was planning on displaying 3000 panels. That is 3000 stories of people who lost their lives due to AIDS-related complications. It was taking place in San Francisco, California, and I knew I couldn't afford to go without additional financial support. Well, it was 11 days later, on April 29, 2022, when a listener, who will remain nameless, dropped a comment on a TikTok video. They wrote, quote, I can't find a TikTok that goes with the podcast that mentions the AIDS event in San Fran. I'd be happy to sponsor you for $1,000 to go cover that event. (laughs) Y'all, I didn't know this person. I mean, who says that on TikTok? Who does that? I'll tell you. People who believe in what you're doing. People who want to see you win. And I was blown away and I didn't even really believe it. (laughs) I asked them to send me an email and they actually did. They sent me an email, y'all. They followed through and that drove me to ask others to contribute. And guess what? They did. The Q Crew, that's what I call them today, they came through and it really blew me away. I raised enough money to travel to San Francisco and cover the 35th anniversary of the AIDS Memorial Quilt. Now, as a good reporter, I of course did my research prior to my arrival. I knew when I landed there, I wanted to collect interviews with those who were coming to volunteer, coming to remember their loved ones, those doing the work and making an impact. But when I arrived and began walking the aisles of the quilt, and I do mean aisles, as there were over 350 blocks laid out, which represented those 3,000 panels, those 3,000 stories, and listening to the soundtrack of the names being read and understanding that the average age of a person on the quilt is 33, understanding that each panel quilt is six by three, roughly the size of a coffin, telling a story of remembrance through art and words, There was a deep emotional response that came over my entire body. Tears just began to drop because when you walk through a display of the AIDS quilt, you understand that it is more than the largest community arts project ever in the world. You understand that it transcends needle and thread. And there were two people in particular that I knew would understand. Jada Harris, program manager of the Call My Name project with the National AIDS Memorial, and Dwayne Kramer. Director of Quilt Community Engagement. And Dwayne, I am so glad that you are joining me on this podcast. During that time, I got to learn so much about you and your story. Can you share with the
2: listeners what drew you to this work? Sure, sure. You know, um, you know, my first association with HIV and AIDS was, was really in my family. Um, my father died of AIDS-related complications in 1986, when he was a professor and associate dean of the business school at Howard University in Washington, DC. And at that time, um, not a whole lot was talked about in the Black and brown communities around HIV and AIDS. I mean, on the news, you saw lots of white gay men that were dying. You saw them acting up in the streets, literally uh, demanding rights and focus and attention and medications but you didn't see black people and my father had just died so my sisters and i were really fearful of what people would think because all that you saw were drug addicts gay men and other quote-unquote undesirables in the community that were dying of this disease and we didn't want our father to be associated with that nor did we want our family to be associated with that So we told people he died of cancer for many years. Um, And then I realized that this isn't good for us as a family not to tell the truth, and it's also not good for the greater family, and that's all the other black and brown folks in this country. So we made a decision 10 years later to make a panel for him in the AIDS Memorial Quilt. And so I made that panel with my mother my sisters and aunt, and my niece, who was a baby at the time. And uh, it was an opportunity for us to remember him, uh, to honor him, to celebrate his life, and also to continue educating people because he was an educator, and to educate people about the fact that black and brown people are dying of this disease as well. And so we intentionally put a photograph of him on his panel in the quilt so that you could see that it was a Black man. And that gave us the opportunity to tell people to protect themselves, to educate themselves, and to speak up and to speak out so that we could bring an end to this disease that was and continues to disproportionately affect our community. So that was my first association with HIV and AIDS and what brought me to the quilt. I returned from from that display of, in, in Washington, D.C., of all those panels, and I took my, you know, the HIV test that I was taking every three months or six months. My, my standard, you know, it was my regular time to take the HIV test, and I got a call back saying that the doctor needed to speak with me, and I said to the person that called me, okay, so this has never happened before, so you must be telling me that my test results came back positive. And she said, yes. And so that was right after coming back from telling my father's story and uh, laying out all 50,000 panels of the Azemarillo quilt on the mall in front of the Capitol. And I was living at the time with my previous partner who had been living with HIV from the mid-80s. And he started breaking down in tears. And he said, this is a tragedy. And oh, my gosh. And he had gone through so many complications and, 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 and other issues that he assumed that I would go through the same. And, you know, in 1996, when I converted, antiretrovirals were out, you know, that were life-saving drugs and things that had never been released before. I had a wonderful community of people around me being in San Francisco. I had the support and the love of my family and everyone else, so I felt good. I felt that I was in a good place, and I know that's not everyone's story, but I knew that continuing to live a healthy life, continuing to tell my story and the stories of other people like me that have been affected with this disease and are living and thriving would do good for the entire community. So. That's what I did, and and that's how I really became involved with HIV and AIDS awareness and prevention.
3: Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba.
1: I think it's that representation the representation of your father's face on his panel, right? And when you converted and didn't have the same fear as your partner. That was all possible because of the advocacy that was happening because people were fighting for their lives in the early 80s and early 90s in a way that today we can really only compare it to COVID. And when I was looking and doing research around this topic, as it became very clear to me that there is still an epidemic going on of HIV when it comes to Black folks, specifically in the South, I started to trace the path of Arthur Ashe to Magic Johnson. Then we have Sylvester. And then we've got EZE, Howard Rollins. We had Salt and Pepper talking about let's talk about sex. And we had TLC with Waterfalls talking about condoms and protecting yourself. And then Ray Lewis Thornton and Hidea on Oprah. I mean, I remember Hydea on Oprah like it was yesterday, right? There was all these black figures, public figures, who were living with HIV raising awareness that this was affecting us too, because so much of the media was telling us that it was white gay men. And so there was just such a movement to counter what the media was saying in the early 80s about who HIV and AIDS was affecting.
2: Well, um, at the time, um, again, I I feel like I was in in a unique position only because I was living in San Francisco. Um, And I saw HIV and AIDS prevention messages everywhere all the time, every billboard on the metro, underneath on the city, everything, you know, it was in your face all the time. But when I went home to Houston, you know, where the majority of my family lives or other places in the Black communities, you didn't see HIV and AIDS advertising. You didn't hear people talking about it. You didn't peer see support groups and organizations. You just didn't see any of that. So while I was privileged to be surrounded by um, a community of people that had access to drugs, um, life-saving drugs, finally, um, it wasn't the same for the the folks that I saw when I went back to where my, you know, roots are. And um, still to this day, you know, traveling through Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and all these states, um, you've realized that there are no prevention messages, or very few people are not talking about this. There's a lack of access to um, medication, support services, and their HIV criminalization laws. So, there's all kinds of things that um, allowed the virus to take hold in our community in the black and brown community very early and it continues to this day and that's why it's important that all of us do our part to talk about this so that we can protect one another and not repeat our past mistakes
1: And one part of telling our stories is capturing them, right? And this is the power of this podcast, is that I had the opportunity to speak with people who are living and thriving with HIV today. One of the very first people I had the opportunity to talk to was Nathan Townsend, who is the HIV Prevention Programs Manager for NASEM. And for all of you that don't know, NASEM is the National AIDS Education and Services for Minorities. And... Nathan was formed in 1990, so the early 90s, and is one of the very first African-American community-based nonprofit organizations to stand on the front lines in the fight against HIV and AIDS in Atlanta, Georgia. And Nathan had us all in tears, and I'm just going to let Nathan tell his story, but I think so much of what he says really helps us to understand what was happening in the early 80s.
4: I came up at a, a really strict, um, religious family, but very loving. And what I noticed when I started coming out and joining community was that I was giving up pieces of myself, little by little by little. And and so I I went from being all the way over here where I was like, I'm a good boy. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And then you meet somebody and you give up a edge. and then you you're moving closer. And and so you you had the tendency to just you know really give up all that that is you just to be involved, just to be connected, just to be engaged only to realize that you're not even building anything. You're you're giving up and pouring into something that's not gonna yield any kind of return. And so many times in that process, in that journey, we lose so much of ourselves. We we, we lose our sense of self. And in my case, I lost my, Zero status as an HIV negative person, you know, 38 years ago, because I listened to the lie that this is only white people that that are getting this uh, virus, and so when I get test got tested in 1984, it was just like a symbolic gesture that I just knew that um, child I'm just going to do this for the people. Child walked out that thing a whole different person, but what I realized by myself at that particular juncture was that I don't feel any different just because you just put three letters behind my name. Nothing in me has changed, you know, and, and I hid. I hid in public. Um, I actually joined um, different HIV organizations as a board member, one, um, being aligned, but anonymously. I did the uh, Meals on Wheels for HIV they positive people, doing stuff, you know, for them. I, I got involved, but never told my story. Um, and and I we would go to the club. And you would, you know, we had such a close community, and this was in Philadelphia. And then you would see people just missing, like they were just plucked out of the, of the crowd. And the crowd, the density of the crowd just starts to dissipate. You know, it would be like pop, pop, pop. And everybody knew what that meant. It meant that they were gone. Because back then, people would start to, to, to pull away when they started looking like they were sick. And nobody, it wasn't a thing where they could have a village around them. People suffered in silence and, and uh, in alienation and in isolation. We had, I had friends that moved to the mountains so that they could die, so, so that they, no one would, would know their story. And there was so much stigma and so much shame, but there was so many people that were just caught up. It was almost like the rapture. Like they were just caught up and taken away. And you, you would sit there and wonder, when is it going to be my time? When is it going to be my time?
1: When Nathan did the pop, 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 I felt that. Is that how it felt in the 80s and early 90s? It felt like pop, pop, pop.
2: pop. It did. Um, I moved to San Francisco in the very late 80s and um, it almost seemed like a ghost town in some ways. Uh, You would see people walking around that looked like they were near death Um, and uh, people would just be gone Um, at the same time I was in my 20s and so there was a whole influx of new younger folks moving in that kind of uh, revitalized what the city was looking like and what the people were looking like but I knew that behind those Victorian facades and in those buildings that there were a lot of people that were dying and dying alone and that was scary, that was sad, Um, but yeah, we lost a lot of people, uh, an entire generation of people. uh, Folks that are maybe five to ten years older than me, I, I know folks that have lost all of their friends. They're the only people standing to this day.
1: And I think part of that conversation, too, is that gay folks weren't the only people affected during that time. But those were the only stories that were being amplified at that time. And even more specifically, white gay male stories were the ones being told. And what we know to be true is that there are different ways in which HIV can be transmitted. It's all through the blood. (laughs) I almost evoked a whole Christian Jesus song. Okay, wasn't for the blood. (laughs) It wasn't for the blood, right? But it all happens through the blood. So, yes, gay men definitely were the most affected, but we also can talk about those who were using drugs at the time. And we can absolutely talk about those who are hemophiliacs because that group really wasn't talked about, but they were affected early on at very high rates.
2: Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right, because at that time, so many children were catching HIV through the tainted blood in our system.
1: For me, the first person that comes to mind is Ryan White, because he was the poster child for AIDS during that time. Everyone knew Ryan White's name. Michael Jackson was one of his pallbearers. That was the level, the profile in which he had attained, because the media picked up his story. But we also know that there was a Michael Felton. And Jada Harris is the program manager for the Call My Name Project, which was specifically designed to increase the number of African-Americans on the quilt. And Jada tells the story better than anybody else on the planet. So the way we're going to let her tell the story about Ryan White, but also definitely Michael Felton.
0: Yeah, there, there's a whole section in the Grove that's dedicated to people who um, lost their lives to um HIV and AIDS as hemophiliacs and um a lot of them are, are children or are, are most of them are are young people um and that was kind of highlighted in the Ryan White story um but the focus really was on um the mystery of what people didn't know and the in the and the um the stigma and the shame Uh, of it all and um, the you know assertive aggressive attacks on you know these young children I mean they were children Um, so the hemophiliac story has kind of been I wouldn't say buried but it's not something that's highlighted down because it's what is just not as much of an issue in terms of transmission and It's as as if the society has moved on. Earlier this year, we started doing research on what are the untold stories? Who's missing from the quilt? And um, our wonderful research fellow, Ashley Brown, out of the University of San Francisco, did a deep dive into... Mississippi, because Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, was going to be the first stop on the exhibition. And she came across this story about this young boy, Michael Felton, born in 1971 in Mount Bayou, uh, Mississippi, and grew up in Cleveland, Mississippi. Um, He was a hemophiliac, diagnosed with HIV at 13 years old. Um, Like I said, he was born in 1971, the same year that Ryan White was born, and he was fighting the same fight that Ryan White was fighting. All he wanted to do was go to school, and when he got his HIV diagnosis, he was one of only six people in the entire state of Mississippi that had an HIV diagnosis, and I think one of only 160 something children across the country that had an HIV diagnosis. And as soon as he got that diagnosis, the school board decided that they would not allow him to go to school. And his dream was to go to high school. So at 14 years old, he was petitioning the, the school board to go to public school and he had decided in his own mind that he was going to go into the schoolhouse. Uh, he was going to go, the, you know, he just decided, I'm going to school. And the night before he went to school, he passed away. So he never made it into the school, but the forces that were around him, the community, were rallying in support of him to be able to attend school. Um, And it's because of the work that was done with the community fighting on his behalf, his younger brother was able to go to school. He was also a hemophiliac. And he lived to be 17. So this is I think this is an incredible story about this young, little, little, long, little black boy from the from the Delta of Mississippi fighting the good fight in the same way that Ryan White fought the good fight, but there are no, there are no films made after him. There are no, there are no TV specials. There are no landmark bills. Um, There are no landmark grant names named after him. And he should be elevated in the same way that Ryan White was elevated because he suffered the same challenges
3: Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy, Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: We know Brian White's story. He was everywhere.
2: Yeah, he was everywhere. And there are bills and there are um, resources that, Still to this day, the, the drug assistance program and all these different types of pro- federal programs that are named after Ryan White, who was born in 1971, you know, the same year as Michael Felton.
1: And because we didn't have that representation, no one knows the Michael Felton story. Such a powerful story that no one knows. Dwayne, keep me honest. I believe there's 50-plus panels for Ryan White And only because of the work of Jada and you and the Call My Name project team, there are now two panels for Michael Felton?
2: Uh, There are two, Uh, there will be more. And there's no question that when it's all said and done in the history books, uh, that Michael Felton's story will be told. Um, You know, we're really trying to thread the needle from then you know, the early 80s on um, many HIV and today. And everyone's story is important. It's important for us to remember, honor, and celebrate all of these lives. But it's critically important that we as Black people and brown people know how this virus affected us from the beginning, the struggles that we went through, the triumphs, and the heroes that fought for their own justice and for the justice of others. And we're at today with rates still at extremely high levels for Black women, and particularly Black men who have sex with men. So it's important for us to talk about this, for us to document and remember these stories so that we can bring an end to this. And we can, and we will.
1: So, family, I'm sure you're wondering why in the world that I want to do a whole podcast specifically about the South? Well, I could tell the story, but it's always better coming from the most brilliant people working on this issue. And one of those brilliant people that I met on this journey has been Daphne Ward. She's the executive director of the Southern AIDS Coalition. And let me just tell y'all something. She is a magical human. But I'll let her speak on why we have to focus our energies, our time, our resources on the South.
5: Yeah, I think the South, one, National AIDS Memorial recognized that it had not done a lot of programming in the South. While you had the, the Call My Name program, which is the program, shout out Jada Harris, the program that Jada leads based in Atlanta. Outside of that, there had not been a strong investment or engagement in black and brown communities. And when you look at the rates of HIV. In our communities. As you mentioned. it definitely we still have a national epidemic. To end. But in the south. It's just a whole other level. Of disparity. We know that most people. Living with HIV in the US. That are black and brown. Live in the south. We know that the majority. Of new HIV diagnoses. Happens in the south. We know that most southern states. Have not expanded Medicaid. Most southern states do not have comprehensive sexual health education in our schools. Most Southern states are on the list of the states with the highest rates of poverty and lowest rates of of employment and lowest rates of health. There's just all these things. And so when I talk about HIV in the context of the South, whenever I present, I always start with this map from 1908. And back in 1908, the NAACP um, hired cartographers, map makers to show us the rates of lynching in every state in the country. So it's a really remarkable map because from lightest to darkness and the darker states have the highest rates of lynching in those, you know, that century leading up to 1908. And if you layer that map with the HIV map, as far as rates of HIV, it's the same map. So it's like, we can't have these conversations about why HIV in the South, why is it so bad? Until we talk about systemic racism, until we talk about the fact that this was the plan from the beginning. You know, we want, you know, this is what it was supposed you were supposed to feel like you would have been better off enslaved than living in this region free, right? It were, this is this was the system. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about this work because HIV is just a perfect storm that shows us what it looks like when communities do not have effective and equitable access to health resources, to educational resources, and then are made to feel ashamed when they suffer as a result of a lack of resources.
2: Mm. It's a lot of information. She's speaking the truth.
1: So I've had the opportunity to hear Daphne to speak on multiple occasions. And when she begins to really pull the lens out and look at the holistic reasons as to why it's affected Black folks in the South so drastically different than everywhere else in the country, you just remember that HIV is not just by itself. We can't look at HIV along, we do have to look at the larger problems and the larger systemic issues that have driven this to be such an epidemic in the South
2: in 2023. Absolutely. No, no, everything is actually linked. You know, the failure to effectively address a lot of the factors that she talked about is what really increases HIV vulnerability in our communities. And, you know, the impediments to accelerated service uptake is a key reason why progress in the HIV fight remains so slow. So, um In this regard, the federal plan is concerning because while it rightly prioritizes greater geographic focus in the South, um, it does not openly really grapple with all of the social and structural factors that really contribute to the racial and ethnic disparities in the HIV outcomes. you know, because um, you know, I could roll through a lot of statistics. there's some crazy things such as, You know, the projection is that one in two black men who have sex with men will contract HIV in their lifetime. That's, that's crazy. One in two black men who have sex with men will contract HIV in their lifetime. And why is that? All the homophobia, racism, lack of access to resources, all the things that she talks about. And that's just one example. So there's a lot of work to be done.
1: There's a lot of work to do, especially when we're talking about 13 states, the devastation that's happening within 13 states. The South makes up 38% of the population, but 52% of all new HIV cases when it comes to Black folks. And it's just like, those two things do not equate. That data tells us so much about the problem. And and that's, that's why the folks doing the work do call it an epidemic.
2: Well, you know, it's not just an epidemic. I mean, let's call it what it is. It is a crisis. People need to understand that it is a crisis in the South with HIV and AIDS for Black and brown folks.
1: And it's for that very reason, the way that I wanted to do this podcast, because I understand the power of us telling our stories. Because when we don't, our stories are erased from history. They will pretend that we were never here. And in this episode, Family, we talked about the public figures that you all are so familiar with. We've talked about the lack of representation today, and now you know about Michael Felton. Now in episode two, we're gonna dig into more about the fear that existed in the early 80s and how that fear has led us to the stigma that is still killing us today. We're gonna dig a little bit deeper into how that stigma actually materialized itself in real life. So family, stick with us, episode two. You're tuned in to Black HIV in the South. How did we get here? Black HIV in the South is an exclusive production of The Cube. The show is produced by Latrice Sampson Richards of STS Productions and edited by Experience J of Just Listen Media. Follow us on social at The Cube app and check out The Cube to discover the best BIPOC and QTPOC podcasts.